Welcome to Radio Ed's first mini-sode. I'm Nicole Militello. Since the news is changing so fast these days because of the coronavirus, we wanted to start bringing you some bonus episodes in between our regularly scheduled content. So right now, we're entering our third month staying at home because of the coronavirus, so we're recording this episode from our makeshift studios at home over Zoom. And while all of us are being encouraged to social distance, there are some places that that's just impossible, like prisons. They're hot spots for spreading the virus, especially since many prisons in the United States are overcrowded. In some states, 70% of incarcerated individuals tested are positive for the coronavirus. So today we're going to talk about all of this with psychology professor April Alexander. She just wrote a paper called Sick and Shut In, Incarceration During a Public Health Crisis. Let's start with what makes prisons, especially in the United States, hotspots for the coronavirus. Well, if you're familiar with any kind of correctional environment, it's really deprived of a lot of resources that we have in the real world. Uh, So correctional settings are often uh, deprived, crowded, unsanitary environments, uh, which just don't lend themselves to healing uh, from things like a virus or illness. Um, Thinking about just even the space, uh, there's poor ventilation, poor circulation of air. Um, In some facilities that I've worked in, we couldn't even have hand sanitizer because some individuals would get a hold of it, uh, usually those who were um, mentally ill or who had cognitive deficits, and consume it. Uh, So we couldn't even have hand sanitizer um, to help protect yourself against illness. So that lack of kind of resources and just the nature of the facility really makes it a risk for people who are incarcerated to develop these health-related problems um, and uh, not be able to heal properly from these problems. And a lot of folks who come into prison already have health problems just from living. Uh, So a lot of these individuals may have been homeless prior to coming to prison. Uh, They may have had health-related problems due to lack of uh, insurance uh, while they were on the outside. So they're already coming in as a vulnerable population and just more susceptible to illness. When you have Colorado uh, prisons at uh, 90% uh, capacity, prevention techniques like uh, physical distancing are just impossible to have in order to protect yourself from COVID. Do you know what measures they are taking inside prisons to try to distance people or manage the virus? Um, It's really hard and difficult to say. Um, I don't know if we have a whole lot of information here in Colorado. Um, Other states are trying to figure out ways to create some social distancing. Uh, So a a lot of it are things that we don't like. Uh, So limiting visitors, uh, limiting uh, some of the recreational activities that are going on inside. Uh, So these are kind of resources that we would love for individuals to have. but during this time of COVID, uh, reducing a lot of those activities in order to reduce the spread. Mm -hmm. And so like you said, being in a correctional facility, it's already marked by social deprivation. And then now with the coronavirus, we're kind of bringing it even to the next level, like you said, no visitors. What does that do for like the psychology of incarcerated people or how they're managing uh, being in prison? Sure, we know things like isolation and solitary confinement do result in a lot of adverse um, symptoms. Uh, So that has impact on your uh, psychological functioning, your cognitive functioning, and even the way in which you behave. So when we take away things like educational and social programming, we're creating further isolation that you might not have contact to your family members uh, as some prisons have reduced even phone and video calls. Um, A lot of the prison services uh, that are provided are faith-based and so not having access to that can wear wear on a person's mental health. Uh, So we just need to be mindful of how um, isolation, which was already a problem in these settings is even more exacerbated during this time. 
And this isn't really just a prison problem. What happens inside the prison is not just staying inside of the prison. So can you just talk a little bit about how that also does affect the local communities outside of prison walls? Sure, so we need to think about, uh, our ultimate goal is to reduce the spread of COVID. Uh, and so when we're looking at the prison environment, we have hundreds of staff who staff these facilities uh, from day to day. So hundreds of people who are going inside and outside of this environment each and every day, uh, again, uh, creating uh, further exposure to the virus. Uh, so we have staff who are considered essential personnel due to the nature of their work, and we have to have staff in the prison. Um, they are susceptible from uh, encountering COVID on the outside and possibly bringing it inside a prison, which is causing this, again, great spread um, in correctional institutions. And so we've seen recently, like Sterling Correctional Facility, they have over 230 cases of COVID with just individuals who are incarcerated alone. Um, so that's not even counting the staff members who are susceptible and possibly taking this back to their communities and to their family members who can also be part of uh, vulnerable or at-risk groups. Um, uh, one of the things that we've seen is um, also many of these prison personnel have not been given adequate PPE uh, in order to minimize their exposure to the virus. Uh, so there's just a huge concern if we're trying to protect the public, we need to figure out what our definition of that is. That protecting the public is also protecting our staff who have to come in and out of these facilities. Uh, that staff at correctional facilities are similar to our other healthcare workers like nurses and doctors. Um, they're doing essential at work um, and we need to be mindful of how do we protect them and protect our communities. And you wrote a whole paper on this recently, and I'm just curious what inspired you to share this message and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, a lot of my work does center on um, creating a space and creating a voice for vulnerable populations. So uh, in my work, I've worked with both victims of uh, inter uh, interpersonal violence, and I've also worked with those who perpetrated interpersonal violence, uh, because many of those people have been victims themselves, uh, whether that's victims of violence or victims of the system uh, that has put them in their position. Um, so when COVID-19 came up, uh, we were having a lot of conversations about the impact on our community. Um, and I always think about how do we define community? That these individuals who are incarcerated are also part of our community. Uh, they were a part of our community beforehand, and they're going to be part of our communities in the future. That 70% of people who are incarcerated are going to return back to our communities. Um, so uh, if I'm thinking about creating safe environments and reducing the spread of COVID, I need to be thinking about these vulnerable uh, individuals too who are incarcerated. Uh, then we have this tendency to often dehumanize people who are incarcerated, um, but I need people to really think about who is it that's incarcerated, that a lot of people in our jails and prisons um, have uh, severe mental illnesses. A lot of them have substance abuse disorders that they didn't have proper treatment for or proper access to treatment. Um, and then here in Colorado, I think of the individuals who are still incarcerated for drug offenses. Marijuana is now legal, and we still have thousands of people who are incarcerated off of drug offenses that happened prior to that decriminalization of marijuana. Um, so when I'm writing this paper, I'm thinking about all those individuals who are impacted by COVID but aren't front and center of the conversation. Uh, so thinking about our incarcerated individuals and other marginalized groups. Some experts are recommending a process called smart decarceration. Can you just tell us uh, what exactly does that mean and what would that look like? Yeah, smart decarceration has been around for some time, uh, but it's making a big buzz now. Uh, what it is, is really looking at how do we transform policy uh, really aimed at reducing incarceration uh, across the United States. 
so we know that uh, mass incarceration is a huge problem in the United States. Uh, the United States is the biggest uh, hub, biggest uh, hub for incarceration throughout the world. Uh, and what we've seen once again is there's a big movement for reform. Uh, that a majority of Americans recognize that incarceration and mass incarceration is a problem, uh, that we're incarcerating too many people, uh, we're recognizing that there are disparities in who we incarcerate, um, and one of the conversations we haven't had uh, quite yet today is children are incarcerated. Um, so smart decarceration is really aiming for evidence-based ways in which to think about how do we eliminate disparities in the criminal justice system and how do we reduce incarceration while still maintaining our goal of creating public safety and uh, creating public well-being and centering the voices of victims. Um, so again, taking a really critical look on are there people that don't belong in prisons and jails settings? Uh, so again, I speak of those individuals who are there for marijuana-related offenses. Do they still need to be there right now? Uh, the answer is no, uh, for so many different reasons. Um, and so thinking about um, are there approaches that we can do to reduce uh, this issue of mass incarceration, reduce the racial ethnic disparities in our criminal justice system, and then in this conversation, reduce the spread of COVID. Let's talk more about the young people. It's not just older people incarcerated, it's also younger people too. So how is this affecting them? Yeah, so we're seeing a widespread of COVID in juvenile justice facilities as well. Um, so again, this is not just a, a problem that's affecting adults, uh, but affecting our kids. Uh, that I recently spoke to colleagues in a few other states and there are kids who have gone six or seven weeks without uh, speaking to their caregiver. Uh, can you imagine that, uh, what that would look like for a 12-year-old who's incarcerated, uh, again, usually for a minor nonviolent crime, not to have access to their loved ones for six to seven weeks? Um, while still hearing this news, our kids who are incarcerated aren't isolated from the news, um, so they're hearing of people who are ill, they're hearing about people who are dying, and to not have contact with your family members, again, is contributing to that isolation um, and likely impacting their mental health. Um, so when we're talking about smart decarceration and some of these other policies, we also need to center the voices of kids who are incarcerated as well, uh, because they're the most vulnerable, uh, they're the ones who are most isolated, um, and if we're thinking about how do we reduce reoffending or recidivism, uh, this is going to be critical um, in making sure that we address these kids and providing them with the appropriate resources, tools, and connections with their family members and communities in order to reduce recidivism, because that's one of the things that is most effective, is creating that sense of connection uh, to your loved ones and community. And what lessons do you think that we've learned about the prison system in the United States from this coronavirus pandemic? So I think the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted um, inequities across all systems throughout the United States. Uh, that it's really highlighted uh, educational inequities, the workforce inequities, uh, the stop gaps in our uh, medical system, and highlighted, uh, again, how do we treat individuals who are incarcerated in the United States? Um, if we are treating them like others, like not part of our community, then we're not gonna dedicate the resources to them uh, that, um, again, will be protective of their needs. Uh, so, you know, again, one of the things that we're thinking about in terms of smart decarceration is compassionate release. 
that again, we have individuals in these correctional faci uh, facilities who are uh, aging, uh, that the aging prison population is growing. Uh, we have individuals in there with terminal illnesses, uh, individuals with uh, severe mental illness. Again, what would it look like uh, in order for us to release those individuals, uh, especially the ones that have been rehabilitated, uh, who've made amends uh, for their crimes, um, and again, place them back into their communities. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago, um, we had an 84 year old man who died at Sterling Correctional Facility due to COVID. Um, and again, this is an individual who had dementia, uh, renal failure, and a whole bunch of other medical problems. Um, smart decarceration would aim to, again, resolve those inequities, create a system of fairness. And I think that's the biggest lesson that we're learning with COVID. How do we create fair and equitable systems in order to uh, alleviate these disparities during a pandemic? Uh, that this pandemic has highlighted all sorts of, again, disparities and inequities in our system. Um, and I think once this is all resolved, I'm wondering what lessons are we gonna take for that? And, and what are our next steps in making a more fair and equitable system for everyone, including our individuals who are incarcerated? To read all of April Alexander's paper, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Be sure to subscribe and thanks for tuning in to our first mini-sode. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer and mixed our sound for this episode. James Swearingen arranged our theme and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello and this is Radio Ed. <laughs>